and so we've become good friends with these guys, and we feel good friends with you as a church. And it's a great privilege to not only preach today, but as Anne said, a couple more times before we reach the summer. And I thought I'd bring a focus on the family. So that's what I want to do in these um, three times, spread out a little bit, but gives a bit of time to work on things. So focus on the family. In other words, I want to move from um, getting theological. It's good to get theological. That's my day job as a lecturer in theology. It's good to be theological, but it's also good to get practical, isn't it? And to make sure that what we understand theologically is doing something practically. And in particular, in our homes. Because, I don't know about you, but the hardest place to be holy is in your own home, isn't it? Have you noticed this? In your own backyard, that's the hardest place. This is what I call, um, what I've called hair down holiness. <laughs> what, what do you like when you let, you, you know, we have the saying, oh, let your hair down. Well, are we holy then? Because that is the reality, that if you have a family that you're, you know, you're married, you've got kids, your, your spouse, your children, they really know what you're like when you let your hair down, don't they? Uh, in a way that it's impossible to hide from. So as I bring a focus on the family, I should introduce my family. They're not here this morning, but there's a picture on the screen that you can see. This was one of our, um, our uh, outings in the woods. And uh, so this is my family, my wife, Charlotte, and our three children. Uh, Toby, who's on my back there, I think. Joel, who's got his two fingers in his mouth, as he always does. And Lucy, who's five. So this is the place where I need to learn to be holy, yeah? I, I need to be practical as well as theological by being a good husband and a good father. And I would go so far as to say that irrespective of all of the good things I might do outside of the home, if I fail in the home, I have failed absolutely. In other words, whatever ministry and mission I might have outside the home, this is my primary ministry and mission, to be a good father and a good husband. And actually all, all else is rendered fruitless unless I've been fruitful here. Would you agree with that? Now, that's also true for you, isn't it? So assuming you're married, and if you're not, one day you might well be. So this is hopefully preparatory uh, if you're not already in this zone. Assuming you're married or have children or whatever it might be, being holy in the home is the most important zone in which to demonstrate that what's theological has become practical in our lives. Amen? So that's the challenge. And this morning we're going to focus on marriage. And uh, we're going to focus on the perfect marriage, in fact, And I want to use the perfect marriage, there is such a thing, the perfect marriage as um, as an illustration of why we do actually need the redefinition of marriage. I believe strongly that we do need the redefinition, redefinition of marriage, not in the way that the world is redefining it, but we need to redefine it according to the Bible. We need to get clear again about what Scripture teaches about marriage. The redefinition of marriage then according to God's Word. That's where we're going to go. And in the Bible, we do meet the perfect couple. I'll introduce you to them shortly. Or at least it's a perfect husband who eventually will have a perfect wife. But before we meet that couple, I thought I'd introduce you to another perfect couple, uh, which is a little story that I heard that you may enjoy. It goes like this. There was once upon a time a perfect man and a perfect woman who met. And after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding and a perfect life together. And then one snowy Christmas, the perfect couple were driving their car along a winding road, and they noticed someone distressed at the side of the road. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help, and there stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. So not wanting to disappoint the children on Christmas Eve, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys and began driving from house to house to deliver them. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated, and the perfect couple and Santa had an accident, and only one of them survived. Can you guess who was the survivor? Ladies, do you have any guesses here? 
Now, of course, the perfect woman survived. She is the only one who ever really existed in the first place. (laughs) Everyone knows there's no such thing as Santa Claus, and everyone knows there's no such thing as the perfect man. Amen, ladies? (laughs) But, but, if there's no such thing as the perfect man, and no such thing as Santa Claus, the perfect woman must have been driving the car. And that explains why there was an accident. <laughs> Something in that for everyone. I like, I like to throw out these things. But in that for everyone. Is there such a thing as a perfect marriage? You know, some people do believe in perfect marriages, and they're called single people. Um, <laughs> those of us who've been married, I've been married for a baker's dozen, 13 years. Those of us who've been married realize that This side of eternity, at least, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, is there? But in the Bible, there is. In the Bible, there is a marriage that is perfect, a marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. He is the perfect husband, and he is nurturing a perfect bride. And this needs to be the pattern and the power of true marriage as we would have it in our homes. That's really the basis of uh, this morning. Now, as I talk about marriage, I'm, I'm just conscious if you click on the next slide, you'll see it, that I am treading on eggshells this morning because I appreciate, as we speak about marriage, and I'm going to speak particularly about the perfect marriage, I realize, firstly, there might be some eggshells of singleness. That is to say, you're single, you would love to be married, and that isn't a reality for you at the moment. It may be that there are eggshells because you are married, but your marriage is struggling, Uh, you're feeling the challenge of it, you're feeling the frustration, disappointment. It may be that there are eggshells because you were married, and it's ended badly, um, and divorce, and all those heart-rending complications. I realize I'm treading on eggshells, and whilst I present the perfect marriage the way it's meant to be, I pray that God would give us grace for all of the challenges, because it's not perfect, is it? It's not the way it's meant to be so often in our experience. With all of that by way of a qualification, here is the perfect marriage. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, some words that address wives and husbands, framed with the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate uh, demonstration of the perfect marriage. Here we go. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, that he might present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we're members of his body. For this reason, says in Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This, then, we believe, is the pattern for marriage today. 
And yet, as, as soon as I say that, I hope you, if you're thinking for yourself, I hope you appreciate how bizarre it is for me to say that this is the pattern for marriage today. Why? Well, this text is 2,000 years old. So it's come from a foreign culture in a foreign time and a far distant time of history. It's strange, isn't it? Would you not think that we're teaching marriage from a text that's 2,000 years old? And here's the other strange thing. The guy who wrote it had never been married. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? What are we doing with this? What does he know about marriage? The Apostle Paul who wrote this, he'd never been married. He'd never been a wife who finds her husband's stubble shaving in the sink again. (laughs) He'd never been a husband who was waiting for his wife to be putting her makeup on again, you know, wondering whether she'll be finished first or Jesus will return first. (laughs) He'd never been in in an argument about whether the mother-in-law has to come for Christmas again. What does this guy know about marriage? He's single. He's 2,000 years away from us. Why are we listening to this today? Good question, isn't it? Well, only if the Apostle Paul was the writer but actually inspired by God, who is the real author. In other words, this text speaks today because whilst written 2,000 years ago, it was inspired by the God who eternally has designed marriage. These then are the maker's instructions, the pattern that he has laid out. And uh, for Charlotte and myself, we've come to believe this, that this is God's word, written by humans but inspired by God in such a way that it remains the pattern and power. We haven't actually advanced anything on this. This is part of the problem of our, of our culture, trying to redefine marriage. The idea is that we're progressive, that, that this was regressive, this was old news, old hat, and now we've moved on to better ideas. Well, if this is God's words, you can't move on from God, can you? Where else can you go? How can you improve on God? These are his words. This is his design for marriage. Now, as I say that, I also realize that it sounds strange, doesn't it? I mean, our culture has so redefined marriage that whilst many of us are wanting to believe this is God's word, as I read it out in the context of a culture that's been so shaped by the pincer movement, especially of the feminist movement on the one hand, and now the gay movement on the other hand, the pincer movement, the effects of this cultural power, is that you read this out and it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, in our culture? Do you hear this? If it doesn't sound ridiculous to you, I think you've probably just been in church for a long time. Because listen to the real world, as it's often called, and this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Wives submit to their... Really? (laughs) Is this a joke? I mean, are we honestly, seriously saying... Do you see what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? This sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? This is the thing that looks wrong and out of place in the culture in which we live. I remember when, uh, when before she was my wife, when we were going out, uh, Charlotte was a lodger in a house, and it was a very old house um, with a lot of character, and an old couple in, who, who lived in the house, she was lodging with them. And the reason I had character is because old houses, um, nothing's straight, is it? You know these sort of quaint little cottages where the walls are bowed and the window frames are crooked, and it's kind of quaint because it's got character because everything's crooked. And I remember my wife giving me a picture and saying, would you hang this on the, on the wall in the lounge? So I, I took the picture and I got my tools, my drill, and I also got my spirit level, and I hung the picture and I put the spirit level on the top and it was straight. And then I stepped back from it, and I looked at it, and I thought, it's not straight. <laughs> and I stepped up to it again, put the spirit level, it's straight. That's not straight. It's straight. And it, and it looked crooked. Why? Well, it was straight. 
but I'd hung it in a crooked context. And it looked like it was the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? It was straight. But because everything else around it was distorted, was crooked, it looked like it was the problem. When my wife came in, she said, uh, that's not straight. I said, it is straight, look. And I put the spirit level up there. <laughs> it is straight, but in that context, it looks like it's the problem. Now hang this picture of marriage into our cultural context, and we think that it's the problem. It's not. This is good stuff. This is God's word. Our culture is the problem. Our culture has got crooked and skewed on things of marriage. And we hang this in it, and we think this is the problem. Actually, this is straight. This is the Holy Spirit level. (laughs) He defines truth for us according to God's wisdom. And when we hang this in our culture, our culture thinks that it's the problem. But actually, I would also say this. This is all by way of introduction. I would also say this. Ultimately, look at the statistics and the effects. What does our culture know about marriage? Is it working? (laughs) Are the social experiments producing happiness? No, they're not. No, far from it. The statistics are all in the negative direction when it comes to issues of divorce and separation and children growing up without a two-parent context of health. These are the great challenges our culture faces. Thirteen years on, being a, a very imperfect person myself, nevertheless, as we've tried to do things God's way, it's my conviction, as best I'm experienced in it now, that this works. This is true. So I urge us, let's hang some straight pictures in our crooked culture. Amen? Now all of that's by way of introduction, and then we get into the text. And you notice that Paul assumes that men and women need different teachings. You notice that? They're equal, but there's some stuff for the wives that is bespoke, and some stuff for the men that's bespoke for them. This is because, as biology and the Bible affirm, men and women are different. Are we agreed on that? You only need to be married to one to realize this person is very different to me. Whilst I find them beautiful, I also find them mysterious. <laughs> That's my wife. I mean, uh, there's a diagram on the screen behind me. If you click on to the next slide, here's a, a man's attempt to sum up, the, uh, sum up the differences. This is a man effectively saying, I know woman is different, but I don't understand her. She is mysterious to me. And... Um, and uh, actually, it's been, it's been proven that men's brains work very differently to women's. You know this? This has been proven as the next slide illustrates uh, on the screen. Please forgive me for this, but men... <laughs> men <laughs> it's been proven that men's brains work very differently to women's. Um, I know this is a little bit risky to put up in church, but I thought it was funny. And An- seems to think it's funny as well. Listen, if you don't believe me, let me give a bit of evidence to support this. Let me give you a bit of evidence. In, in the game of cricket, okay, this is from the game of cricket. In the 1890s, men played cricket, and they realized this ball is hard. It could hurt. And so they decided to protect themselves, and they built the box. You know the box that goes around the groin, the man's vital, to protect the man's vital organs. So they built this box in the 1890s, okay? It wasn't until the 1980s that men thought about putting a helmet on their heads. <laughs> 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 Which rather is evidence of where a man's priorities lie. So that's, a, that's my point. Anyway, enough of, enough of the jokes. Biology and the Bible affirm men and women are different. So here is some bespoke teaching that redefines the role of the wife and then redefines the role of the husband. Here's the first thing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now when I typed into Google Images the word submit, this image 
came up. And I thought, I'll use that because I think that's a fairly neat summary of what most of us imagine when we hear that word, submit. I mean, it sounds negative, doesn't it? Dare I say it, it sounds dangerous. Is this really healthy? Is this really going to do anyone good to tell anyone in a marriage to submit to the other one? This is the challenge, again, of what looks so out of place in our culture. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But can I encourage you, ladies especially, to notice a couple of things here. Notice that Paul, firstly, addresses the women. Do you notice this? It's ladies first. Paul is a true gentleman here. He addresses the women before the men, which would have been culturally subversive at this time. In a culture where men, men believe, a Jewish man would wake up in the morning and one of his morning prayers was, God, I thank you, I bless you, God, that today I thank you that you have made me a man, not a Gentile and not a woman. Now, in a culture that's that chauvinistic, this is subversive to address the wives first. And can I also encourage you to notice, he does not talk to the husbands about what the wives should do. It's not that he says, husbands, get your wives to submit to you. It seems to me, in my pastoral experience, some men seem to think he's told them to get their wives to submit to them. He never says that to the men. And any man who's ever tried to get his wife to do what he says has already lost. (laughs) You know, it's crazy stuff. The Bible never takes it that way. The Bible treats the woman as the man's equal and addresses her in her own right, inviting her to make her response. It's not the man's responsibility to get the woman to submit. Now also, as the woman thinks about taking up this role, am I gonna respond, how am I going to respond to this, this call to wives to submit to your husbands? Can I also encourage you to see, ladies, that you're in very good company. Because when we talk about someone submitting to someone else in authority, we could talk about Jesus here. Because Jesus himself is in this kind of dynamic relationship with the Father. So Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, he'll say, just as the head of every wife is her husband, so the head of Christ is God. So the symmetry is a pattern that just as Jesus submits to the Father, wives should submit to the husbands. In other words, you're in good company here. You're in company with Jesus himself. This is not derogatory or belittling, as surely as Jesus himself is not belittled by his relationship to the Father. Far from it. If you see the relationship of Jesus to his Father, it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's a good thing. So, if that's the case, perhaps we could say a few things about what this can't mean, what this doesn't mean. What does wives submit to their husbands not mean? And on the next slide, you'll see a quote which perhaps is important for us to recognize we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater as a picture from Stepford Wives as well. Seen the film Stepford Wives? Anyone seen this film? No? About four of us owning up to it. What do you, what, what do you guys do when you're not in church? You're sitting around reading the Bible, are you? should watch some more films <laughs> and read the Bible. Most of us, uh, Richard Forster says this, not, not that Richard Forster. Um, he's written some excellent books, but this isn't one of them. Um, <laughs> Richard, Richard Forster says this, Mo, Foster says this, most of us have been exposed to such mutilated forms of authority and submission that either we've embraced the deformity or we've rejected the idea altogether. To do the former leads to self-hatred and to do the latter leads to arrogance. So he's encouraging us, don't throw the baby out with a bathwater. Just because what we've experienced of authority and submission may have been negative, don't assume, therefore, the whole idea is rubbish or redundant. Could it be a good thing? Well, as I've said, Jesus suggests yes. But let me say three things that this doesn't mean for wives. Firstly, it does not mean being a doormat. 
It does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean being someone who doesn't think for themselves and act for themselves. That's definitely not the picture we see in the New Testament or the Old Testament. In other words, not a Stepford wife. Uh, if you've seen the film, you'll know what I mean. But the Stepford wives are kind of man's creation of a woman who looks beautiful and seems to do everything they want, but actually we find out that she's a robot, she's a machine. That's not the picture of femininity in the Bible at all. Not a doormat. And secondly, this doesn't have anything to do with being a domestic doll. <laughs> Uh, In other words, this is no statement, you notice. Paul doesn't give any details about what roles, therefore, a wife should have in the home as opposed to the husband. He doesn't say, because the wife submits to her husband, therefore, she should do these domestic chores. No details are given like that. And therefore, we shouldn't write them in either. In other words, this has nothing to do with who does the washing up or who changes the nappies or even who the main salary uh, may come from. Can a wife be fully in submission to her husband and yet also the main wage earner? Yes, presumably. This certainly doesn't say no, does it? And you notice in the New Testament, figures like Lydia, who was a a merchantess in purple cloth in Philippi. She would have been a very wealthy woman, bringing in a large salary. Nevertheless, these are models put forward for godly femininity. So on the one hand, not a doormat, not a domestic doll. And thirdly, whatever this means, it cannot mean that it's dangerous for the woman. Meaning that if the husband is being dangerous towards his wife, domestic violence kind of ideas, the wife has every right to contact the authorities that are over her husband's head, the police. (laughs) Why? Because just as she is in submission to him, he also is called to be in submission to those authorities. Amen? So this is not putting a woman into a dangerous position. If that's the case, the police should be called because that has nothing to do with what it means to be a husband. We'll say a bit more about that later. So I'd say there are two exemption clauses, if you like, from wives submitting to their husbands. Number one is where he, it is not safe, and number two is where, this is where he is asking the wife to sin. Either of those simply cannot be tolerated, bearing in mind that the husband and the wife ultimately submit to God and authorities that are over their heads. So it can't mean any of that. So what does it mean? Well, what would I know? <laughs> uh, so I asked my wife, who's always right, um, about what it means uh, in, from her perspective. And uh, so she, um, on the next slide, she, gave, she emailed me a quote, which is in her own words, of what she feels this is meant for her um, as we've been married to work this out for herself. These are her words. Um, as, and she says this, As a young woman about to be married, I remember feeling that wives submit to your husbands was all heavily weighted in their favor. What was in it for me? I felt this submission thing was more like an oppression of myself, my opinions, and my preferences. We always tend to see things through our own self-centered lens, and then we react in fear. How foolish I was looking back now with 13 years of real marriage experience. In fact, there have only been a couple of times when I've actually had to submit to what Andy believed to be the right thing. And both were situations were, both situations were ones where he demonstrated the principle of servant leadership as my protector. For example, we'd been talking about some means of help for me as I was exhausted. We were leading a rapidly growing church with lots of messy lives and having a very active one-and-a-half-year-old girl, and I was heavily pregnant, and it meant all my resources were very low. However, I am a coper. (laughs) Know what I mean by that? I'm sure some of you ladies, you're copers. My wife is a coper. She doesn't find it easy to accept help. So it was Andy who insisted that Lucy went to childcare for a morning a week, so that I could have a break. 
So I think what my wife's saying in that, what I understand her to be saying is, that actually she thought this would be a negative thing, but as we've tried to work it through according to this pattern, it's become a positive thing. Surely that's what this passage would be affirming. God is good. God has good plans for our marriages. He probably knows best as he invented the thing, and this thing, whatever wives submit to their husbands means, this thing must mean a good thing if it's done in a godly way. Now you notice the phrase that Paul adds to this, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do you notice that? Why does he add that phrase in, as to the Lord? Well, a number of reasons could be given. I want to focus on one, which is this, that some wives may need a deeper motivation for submitting to their husbands than their husbands themselves offer. (laughs) Know where I'm going with this? Some men may not be at times the most honorable and respectable men. Some wives may be married to men who are men, but they act like bachelor boys in the way that they conduct themselves with their responsibilities. So a wife might need a deeper motivation for submitting and honoring and respecting that man than the man himself. And Paul, I think one of the things he's saying here in this phrase is, in other words, if you can't do it for him, respect him or, or, do, or submit him for the Lord. There's a deeper motivation Let your obedience to Christ, your surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, enable you to make a response that he doesn't deserve himself, but you're doing it for the Lord through him. That's a challenge, isn't it? Some men then may not deserve the respect and the submission of their wives because they lack the honor themselves. But can I also say this, and here I am on eggshells, so forgive me. Um, and uh, if, if anything I say this morning offends you, please just uh, forget about me. I may, I may be wrong on many things, um, but please just allow God to speak. What is he saying through this? But here's a challenge. Some men may not be um, easy to honor because they're not honorable. Some men may not have much honor because they have not been honored. What do I mean? What I mean is, as spouses, and I'm conscious of this both ways, as spouses... Sometimes I think we are far more responsible than we've ever realized for the very things in our spouse that wind us up. (laughs) So here's a line that I've heard quite a bit in pastoral care. A couple will come and see you and they'll say something like this, "Um, I don't love this person anymore. That's often the sad opening line. And they'll say something like this, I used to love them, but they've changed. And then they'll say, they're not the person that I married. Ever heard something like that or possibly even thought something like that? They've changed. They're not the person that I married. I used to love them, I don't anymore. Now, there could be many explanations for that phrase, but here's one of them. Think it through logically. So here's what you're saying to me. There's been an adverse change in your spouse, and it roughly traces back to when you married them. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Whoops. I think we've just sawn off the very branch that we were sitting on. Could it be that we are more responsible than we've ever realized for the very things in our spouse that wind us up? So when a wife says, for example, oh, my husband, he's just passive. He doesn't initiate. I wish he'd be more proactive. Heard that quite a few times. Well, there might be many reasons for that. But one of the reasons might be because you've said that to him. Because you've said that to him enough times, if a man is not honored, if if a man is criticized, especially in public, it kills something in him, his get-go, his desire to be honorable, his desire to initiate. If you criticize enough, you'll kill the very thing in him that you're actually wanting to see. That's like someone who sows some seed and then yells at the fruit that it produces. (laughs) The challenge here then 
is a, is a true one. The challenge is, am I nurturing in my spouse the qualities that I would love to see in them? Wives, if you honour your husband, you may, you may nurture him to be an honourable husband. Do you see the point I'm making? Honour him and he might become honourable. <laughs> the one might lead to the other. Or to put it as a summary, wives, if you have a husband, he runs on encouragement. I mean, this is us men, isn't it? We run on encouragement. We're fueled by it. As, as a car needs petrol to, to run, so a, a husband needs encouragement. Put some fuel in the tank and you'd be surprised at what that man can do. Amen? Men, are you pleased with this message so far? Humanity? Yeah, this is one of the best sermons I've ever heard. You get her. That's right, you tell her. Well, guys, we've just lobbed out a boomerang. <laughs> and now it's coming straight back at us. Because having addressed the wives first, notice that, Paul then heads to the men, and he challenges the husbands. And he says this, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. As the next slide shows, this might include many things. I'm sure um, for some this could include, if you click on to the next slide, is that possible? Um, It could include breakfast in bed, um, but it could be a little bit more than that, couldn't it? I'm sure some of you wives are thinking, well, I'll settle for that, to be honest, but... But it might be a bit more than this. Actually, for Mother's Day this year, um, I, I bought, on, our, on behalf of our little children, I bought my wife a bell. And the deal is that if she rings this bell, I have to make her a cup of tea. That's, that's the kind of new arrangement in our home. And uh, unfortunately, the kids have got hold of it, and they keep ringing it. So I've been making a lot of cups of tea that haven't been drunk. But anyway, husbands, you notice then, husbands need to also serve their wives. The wives serve by submission, but the husbands serve by sacrifice. Both are servants of the other. It's not that it's one way, it's two way. Husbands, love your wives. But I would suggest that if we look at the text carefully, this means a lot more than breakfast in bed. That would be to trivialize it. Well, how does Paul go on? If you click on to the next slide, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did he do that? Like this. This is the picture of a husband loving his wife now. This is the way the the Bible would redefine the role of the husband to serve his wife like Jesus died for the church. That is challenging, isn't it? Gentlemen, that is deeply challenging, isn't it, for us? This is the image of a perfect husband, the one who would give even his very life for his wife. Now, Jesus, then, is the model for how husbands love their wives. And in this respect, he's done two things. He served and he sacrificed. Jesus, then, has turned headship on its head. <laughs> Think about this, the concept of headship. If, if you hear that so-and-so is the head of their organization, what do you assume by that? Well, in the world's mind, we assume that means they've got the biggest office, the biggest profile, and the biggest salary. And in some way, if they're the head, if they're the CEO of this organization, the organization serves them. Now think of that model, which is the world's model. Sadly, so often, all that we've done is baptized it in Christian terminology and roughly kept it the same. And so when we hear that husbands are heads of their wives, we think of that model. It doesn't mean that anymore. Why? Because Jesus has turned headship on its head. For the head of the organization, the Lord Jesus Christ, has washed the feet. And that changes everything. Amen? When the head washes the feet, it turns the whole idea of headship on its head. We are to be the servants of our wives. And in in serving them, we sacrifice for them. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. 
Notice here, Paul can't help but speak about the love that Jesus has for the church. I remember going through a rather immature phase in my Christian life where I loved Jesus, but I became a bit cynical, a bit negative about the local church. And then I remember reading this passage in Ephesians 5 and being deeply challenged by God. How dare I think that I can love Jesus, but not love and serve his church when Jesus gave himself for the church? If we are to love Christ, it will be expressed in the way that we love and serve his church. I urge you, don't just attend church, give yourself to it. It's the bride of Christ. It's worth every ounce of investment, financially, in terms of time, in terms of heart service. Jesus loved the church. And yet Paul switches between the two. He speaks about this, and then he's back on the husbands. And he says, so love your wives like this. What does that mean for us, gentlemen? What would it mean for us to love our wives like Christ loved the church? Well, here I feel deeply convicted and challenged. But here are three things that I think this must mean. Firstly, husbands would pray with and for their wives. Surely we would do this. Because if we are spiritually heads of our homes, surely one of the ways we would exercise that headship is through prayer. Amen? We would pray with our wives, and we would pray for our wives. Anything less surely is an abdication of our responsibilities. Why? Because God gave to the husband spiritual authority in the home. And one of the ways he exercises that spiritual authority is through prayer. Where in the name of Jesus, the husband is praying for his wife and all of the challenges that she faces with her, praying with her and praying for her. This is the man's responsibility. He is the head of his home. When Adam and Eve sinned, you notice in terms of how that came down, Eve really was the source of the temptation for Adam. She took the fruit from the serpent and gave it to her husband, Adam. So while she initiated... When God came to the couple to hold them to account, who did he call for? Adam, where are you? He called the man to account for the couple. Why? Because he'd given him spiritual authority, spiritual headship. He answered for this situation. Gentlemen, we answer for our homes. We answer for the spiritual atmosphere that we have allowed within our homes. That's the challenge for the husband. Husbands, pray then, for our wives, lead in the spiritual atmosphere of the home. This means not hiding. You notice what Adam did? He hid. (laughs) What do men do? We hide, don't we? We hide at the office. We take on more and more responsibilities, climbing the ladder in the office. And what it means is we give all of our energies out of the home and we've got nothing left to give when we come home. That's not good enough, is it? We've, we've got to rearrange our priorities. I realize we have to work hard. And in this culture, in this climate, I realize keeping your job maybe more and more of a challenge, but still we have a responsibilities in the home as well to be praying with and for our wives, to be leading the family spiritually. Don't hide in the office, don't hide in hobbies. Men, aren't we good at finding hobbies, things to do that become great distractions? We get very passionate about them, but it would be quite possible, passionate about rugby as I am, it would have been quite possible for me to have spent six hours watching rugby yesterday. And I nearly did. But I restrained myself, realizing, actually, Andy, you've not attended to the necessities yet, and that's called a luxury. (laughs) Do the necessities, and then you can see how much time you've got left for luxuries. One of the necessities is leading our home spiritually. Don't hide at the office and don't hide at home. Hide, uh, sorry, don't hide in hobbies. We need to be men who lead in the home. Firstly, in praying. Secondly, in providing. 
Of course, the husband needs to provide, as Jesus does for his church, needs to provide the the resources that his wife and the family need. Now, this, of course, includes putting bread on the table, but it's got to be more than that as well. It's not enough just to say, well, I put bread on the table, you know, I paid the bills, as if that's the end of a man's responsibility. It's quite possible for me to pay the bills and still not really love my wife. Would you agree? Because actually just having food on the table doesn't guarantee that she feels loved and cared for and listened to and appreciated. It takes a lot more than food on the table to allow those two to become one. That's the challenge. I remember hearing a, a man um, say that he, he told, I told my wife on our wedding day that I loved her and I would let her know if the situation changes. <laughs> well, that might, uh, <laughs> that's not an adequate enough expression of love, is it? Jesus has not told us once that he loves us and then said, and I'll let you know if that changes. He tells us innumerable times in creative ways through the continual ministry of the Holy Spirit that today I love you. A husband must find innumerable ways through the creative help of the Holy Spirit to communicate to his wife on a daily basis, I love you. That's a man's responsibility, to, provi- to, to pray, to provide, and thirdly, to protect. Notice here, the wife is, the, is spoken of almost as the body of the husband. No man would ever hurt his own body, would he? And then sadly we realize, yeah, they would. Because sometimes men have hurt their own wives, even physically. And that's terrible. That's dark. And the reason it's dark is because the two should have become one, such that the man should have been the greatest guarantee of the safety of his wife. And instead, he's become the greatest danger. And that's a great challenge, isn't it? Men, if we have ever lost our temper to the point that we have physically intimidated our wives, either by physically hitting them or squaring up to them to the point that they, meant, they understood what we meant, unless you back down, I'm bigger than you. If we've ever done that, we need to repent. We need to ask our wives forgiveness, but I would argue we need to then ask someone else to help us. Don't ask her to help you, she's scared of you. Ask someone else who can work through those anger issues, because they've got to stop. The, wife, the husband should be the protector of his wife, the one who makes her feel safe. Amen? And in addition to protecting her physically, the husband should ensure the protection of her emotionally from exhaustion and all those other things. Notice what Paul says, no one ever hated their own body, but cares for it. What he's getting at is, we should see our wives as an extension of ourselves. And what that means is, if my wife is not doing well, but I am, if my wife is exhausted, but I'm fine, if she's not sleeping, but I am, if she's not having any time for other interests, but I have, if there's any of a gap opening up between how my wife's doing and how I'm doing, that gap is deeply concerning, because they should be one. He should be treating her as an extension of his own body. She should be receiving all of the privileges and opportunities that he himself receives, in whatever version that should come. Now again, as I've been preparing this, That's challenged me. I've had to put some things right because I noticed there was a gap opening up between how my wife was doing, particularly in terms of energy levels, and how I'm doing. Husbands, love your wives as yourself. As yourself. This is challenging stuff, isn't it? Now the ladies should be cheering. (laughs) Yeah, you tell them. So the Bible redefines the role of the wife and redefines the role of the husband, and you notice their role is towards the other. Both of them are servants of the other. And when they both start serving in those different ways, the whole thing can become a glorious depiction of the perfect marriage, 
with which we finish. We've redefined the role of the wife, redefined the role of the husband, let's redefine marriage as a whole. Because this is what Paul does. You notice he's speaking about the husband and the wife, and it seems to be just about a a marriage like yours and mine, just a little micro-marriage on earth. But he can't help but move from that to say, but what I'm really speaking about is the mega-mystery, he calls it, the mega-mysterion of Christ and the church. So here we finish with an amazing verse. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm really speaking about Christ and the church. You see, here I think is what he's saying. The Bible started, the book begins with a marriage, doesn't it? A marriage between Adam and Eve. A marriage much like yours and mine on earth. The the Bible starts with a marriage, but the Bible also finishes with a marriage. The marriage that is consummated at the end of the Bible is between Christ and the church. And here's the point. In some way, this little marriage between me and my wife, Adam and Eve type marriage, is connected to this glorious and eternal marriage, which is the mega mystery. The mega mystery is how this can be connected to this, and indeed find its power one from the other. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to sum all of this up on the next slide. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, in the imagery describing Christ and the church, we're dealing with the husband and wife, not merely as facts of nature, but as the living and awesome shadows of a greater reality that is beyond our knowledge. Whenever you see a husband and wife, you get a glimpse as they love each other of the great true love of Christ for his church. The one is a little glimpse on earth of something that actually belongs in heaven. Now here's the point. Christ and the church then is not only the pattern for marriage, which we've looked at, husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church, wives submitting to their husbands as the church to Christ, that's the pattern. But this is also the power of marriage. You see, there are resources available to every one of us who's married this morning in Jesus Christ. Because of his perfect marriage, we can in some way connect our little marriages to that mega marriage and receive the power that Jesus has to help our marriages to be like his. There's not just a pattern, there's power. There's grace in Jesus' name for every hurt that needs to be healed. There's forgiveness in Jesus' name for every sin that must be forgiven for restoration. There's energy and resources to enable marriages to come alive again that have grown cold and are soon to go out altogether. In Jesus' name, there isn't just a pattern, there's power as well. Amen? And if you're in a marriage and this morning you are conscious, actually as I hear hear what the pattern is, I see what it's meant to be like, I realize we're a long way from this. We need our whole marriage redefined. We need the redefinition of our marriage. We need it to be like Jesus and the church. How can this happen? Well, you can call on his name. You can seek help. You can determine that Jesus will be the source and the center of your marriage. And as we do this, our marriages begin to be enriched and they grow and they change. From our little thing, they become like his great glorious thing. Amen? So I urge us this morning, if this message has challenged and convicted you, Don't allow that to go to a negative place of feeling, oh, forget it, I'm useless. No, 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 no. Take the pattern and ask for the power. Jesus, I hear what my marriage is meant to be like. Oh, God, I pray, give me the power to see this in my relationship. When I was a boy, I remember we used to go on holiday, um, on school, uh, family holiday to a place called Tenby in South Wales. And... um, 
On one occasion, we, it's, it's by the sea, and um, we, we hired a rowing boat. This is when I was probably, I don't know, six or seven maybe. And we rowed out of the harbour in this rowing boat as a family, my parents and three of us as kids, in this little rowing boat. And my father, being this sort of typical male, he couldn't just enjoy a nice leisurely time. He needed a target. Let's do something with this boat. And so he saw, he rowed out of the harbour, and he saw a rock, which was kind of looked like it was fairly nearby, proved to be a bit further away than we realised. He said, we will row round the rock, <laughs> like a man. Um, anyway, everyone else is like, okay, if we need to. Um, <laughs> and it was very easy rowing out to the rock. We reached the rock with gliding speed. Little did we realise that that was because the tide was going out. We were in a rip that was taking us out. It seemed very easy to row out. We came round the rock, and then as we started to try and row back, I can remember seeing the look of exhaustion growing on my father's face as he was rowing as hard as he could, and we weren't getting anywhere. We were stuck. The tide was going against us. And pull as he might, as hard as he could, we were not getting home. We were not getting to safety. And I remember the fear. I was only six or seven, but I remember the fear as I looked in his face and realized he hasn't got what it takes. And then I also remember the power. I remember the feeling of of another power suddenly coming towards us as someone had seen this scenario unfolding and the lifeboat had been launched. And I remember as we in our little boat felt powerless, I remember what it felt like for another power to come alongside us. That's hope, isn't it? (laughs) Suddenly you begin to feel safe when you realize our little boat now has come along, and now a big boat has come. And when I heard that feeling of power, you begin to feel safe. I also felt struck around the head by something, and I was, literally, that was the safety line that they threw from their boat to ours, hit me around the head, We tied our boat onto it, and suddenly our little boat was connected to this big power boat. And immediately you feel hope. Why? Well, because now we're going where it's going, and it's going home. It's going to safety, we're connected to it, we're going to safety. Now that is a picture of Christ and the church. It is the glorious, powerful marriage that is heading to eternity and to glory. And here's our little boat. (laughs) Some of us are in marriages and we've rowed as hard as we can. We're exhausted. We've given everything we've got and we don't feel like we're making it. Listen, can you feel the presence this morning of another power? The power of Jesus coming alongside. Maybe you feel a bit hit around the head by this message this morning. What's just hit you around the head is a safety line, is a lifeline. In Jesus' name, there's hope for every marriage in this room. But we've got to take hold of it. We've got to attach it to our little marriage and say, Lord Jesus, I hear the pattern I want to feel the power. Will you help our marriage to go where your marriage is going, to that perfect place? Now, if we're married this morning and we want to receive the pattern, firstly, we say, Lord, we won't allow culture to define our marriage. We'll redefine our marriage by Scripture. That's the pattern. Sometimes it will, you'll be accused of being wrong. Why? Because this straight picture is hung in a crooked culture and it looks like it's the problem. But will you dare to do things God's way? Wives, will you dare to love your husbands God's way? Husbands, will we dare to love our wives God's way? In a culture that doesn't understand these things, let's turn to Scripture. Firstly, then, if you want to receive the pattern and say yes to it. And secondly, if you're conscious also that you need to receive the power. Lord, help us. Come into our marriage and enrich it and renew it with the resources of heaven. We want to attach our little marriage to your great, powerful marriage. If that's where you're at, I want to just invite you 
to stand with me and I want to pray for us uh, as we are married and we're seeking freshly this morning. So just stand with me if that's where you're at. Um, if that isn't, you're married, but that isn't what you want, then please don't feel a pressure to stand. But if you're married and you say yes to the pattern and yes to the power, Lord, help us to live it out this way. I'd love to pray for you. Just picture that face of, of my father, if you can imagine it, as he'd given everything he'd got and he was exhausted. And uh, there was fear, scared, scared that we weren't going to make it. I just sense there's some of that in the room this morning. There's a exhaustion, a frustration. You feel like you've put a lot into this relationship, this marriage, and it doesn't feel like it's making it. And there's a fear as well. A fear that can be expressed in unhelpful levels of jealousy sometimes, of suspicion, a fear that this thing is not going to survive. We're not going to make it home. Father, we stand before you this morning because we want to bring our marriages to you. We want to bring them to you because we believe they've come from you. We believe that you are the designer, the creator of marriage. That's why our culture is not free to redefine it, because we didn't define it in the first place. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is the pattern of God. And we stand before you, Father, because we want to bring our marriages to you and say, Lord, we want to get back to doing them your way. Forgive us for the times where in this culture that seems so fixed and certain of what it's doing, we've struggled to really do things your way. We've almost turned away, consciously or subconsciously in our hearts. We've resisted. We've rejected the claims of Scripture on our marriage. Lord, I pray that we would receive forgiveness for that and that we would be determined as we leave today, my marriage will be done Scripture's way, not culture's way. If you're a wife this morning, could you affirm that? Before the Lord, and before you do it to the Lord, can I urge you to see that if you're going to affirm this to the Lord, he's going to turn to you and say, and now would you affirm that to your husband? Would you tell him that? If you're a wife this morning, but you say, I want to treat my husband as Scripture calls me to. Sometimes because that's easy and he deserves it, sometimes when it's hard and he doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to do it anyway for the Lord. Just make that response. And husbands, husbands, some of us who are rightly feeling convicted this morning because we have not loved our wives as we should. We've used them. We've not appreciated them. We've thought that being the head meant something that the world thinks it means. And our headship needs to be turned on its head. The head washes the feet in this kingdom. And so should we. Husbands, serve your wives. If you're prepared to renew a fresh vow of love and service for your wife, again, as surely as the Lord's going to ask you to say it to her, if you say it to him, say it to him. Make a vow and a fresh pledge before the Lord, and then communicate that to your wife in a way that will mean something to her.
And Father, this morning as we rededicate our marriages to your pattern, we also just lift our hearts to you, Lord, and say, and we need your power. We can't do this on our own. We are sinful and weak. We're broken and hurting, and sometimes the hurts that we have are the fears that we hold. And sometimes that messes it all up. And Lord, we, we need you to heal us. We need you to help us. We need you to move, help us move beyond some of the walls that we've built around us, to being vulnerable again, to being open again, to being tender again, to being understanding again, to actually listening, rather than formulating all the things I want to say, hearing, listening, tender. Lord, I pray that you would give this power that only you have. You give the pattern, but you also give the power. And right now, Lord, we take our little marriages, like that little rowing boat, being swept away by greater powers. And yet, Lord, we felt this, this morning another power has drawn alongside. We've been hit over the head, not by something to hurt us, but by something that can help us. And we receive it, Lord, and we say, Lord, we want to connect our little marriages to your mega marriage, to the mega mystery of Christ and the church. And we say, Lord, all the power of grace that you have in that marriage, would it be channeled into ours? All the power of forgiveness, all the healing, all the mercy. We call it down into our marriages and say, Lord, let the pattern be filled with the power of Jesus. And may our marriages, as a result, be a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the church. In a culture that's losing faith in marriage altogether, I pray that we'd hang some straight pictures and that our culture would see, wow, this is how it's meant to be. For the glory of Christ and for the good of our marriages, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.